Tonight we are taking communion, and I want to set this up just uh, by way of a few verses. It's always good to read God's Word, and the Bible says we have to give ourselves to the public reading of the Word. I'm not going to read the book of Genesis, but I've got a few chapters. No, I've got a few verses I want to read. Just to start off, here's one. It's from 2 Corinthians. It's the third chapter. It's the 18th verse, and it says this. We all, that's believers, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as I've read through scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament, sometimes I come across, like you come across the story that they're referring to here, Paul's referring to where Moses comes down from the mount. He's got the, the two tablets of the covenant. And when he comes down, people look at him and they're like blown away. Like, no, he, he spent time in the presence of God and the glory that was on him somehow was some visible, palpable, tangible. It was a spiritual thing that happened, but there was such an impact on his life that it reflected to the people that saw him. And they were so taken aback by it. They're like, bro, you got to cover your face. We can't handle that. It's too much for us. And what Paul's arguing is what we've received in the, in the new covenant is so much greater than what Moses received. And the glory that God wants to reflect through our lives is even supposed to be greater. When I look at somebody like Moses, and I think, wow, he had these encounters with God where he would sit and he would talk to God. And there was this, like, friendship thing that he had, Abraham, before, obviously before the coming of Jesus. Anytime in the Old Testament, when you see um, the angel of the Lord came to whoever, came to Abraham, came to Gideon. These were, many of the scholars will say, these are pre-incarnations of Jesus. And I, I always put myself in their position and think, man, what? What would that have done to me if I could have been like Abraham walking with God, a friend of God, and he just shows up and what would my life look like on the other side of that encounter? What would my life look like on the other side of being called up to some mount, given some covenant with tablets and coming down and like, I don't even know it, but it's, the, the impact is so great that it overwhelms the people that are around me. What about Isaiah, sixth chapter in Isaiah? In the year that King Uzziah died, you know, I saw the Lord high and lifted up this train filled the temple. Like, if you could visibly see something like that, if you could encounter God in some tangible way, I'm always like, man, that would change me. I wouldn't be the same person. I would be so much different. One moment like that, and I would, I would be walking on water. How many of you have ever thought that as you've read that? Like, those are special people. Well, I want to remind you tonight from this scripture that... I think you and I in the New Testament um, are better positioned to behold the glory of God in a way that they had a, a poor shadow of whatever it was that they saw. And you go, that doesn't make any sense. No, it makes total sense. You know, Jesus, in the 17th chapter of John, he says, Father, my hour has come. Now, glorify me that I might glorify you. What does that mean? Glorify me in this moment. He's not talking about when I get to heaven. He's talking about here and now. Glorify me here so that I might glorify you there. Like this moment that he's praying for is this moment of, I would say, the greatest revelation in eternity that's ever been made and will ever be made. Jesus Christ crucified. Whatever angels understood of God and his love in eternity past before a fall, They came to appreciate in a much different way as they beheld God in his patient, kind, loving way 
work through people who were shaking their fist at him, entering into the world in flesh, taking on all that it was to go and hang on a cross. When Jesus is praying, now God glorify me that I might glorify you. He's saying, give me what I had in eternity past. He had a glory that he's asking to be made real and whole in this moment. Whatever miracles were up to that point, whatever blind eye was being opened, the great revelation of God's glory was Jesus Christ lifted up on a tree. Can you imagine what we miss out on because we don't take time to sit and contemplate and think through what that means? This passage says a couple of things. It says that when we, when we do that, when we behold his glory, he actually begins to transform us. Well, I just want somebody to pray over my life. I got a problem. You come forward here tonight. We're going to pray for you. We're going to pray over you. Maybe the glory of God will fall, and all of a sudden, your life is different. Maybe God will give you some crazy revelation where you're no longer the same, or your physical condition changes, or you get provision that you didn't have. It just comes out of nowhere tomorrow. I I believe all that can happen. I'm for it. Let's pray for it. Let's go. God can do anything. There's nothing impossible with him. But what we're talking about here is why we're taking communion now. We find our consistent transformation before God as we behold the greatest expression of God's glory that we know. It's not, I saw him high and lifted up. It's that he was bloody and crucified on a tree. That's the revelation of God's glory in our life. And it's in the value of that. It's in the reflection of it. This is, this is let's, let's contemplate. Let's think this through. This isn't just some exercise that you go through and you take a little bread, you take a little wine, you take it and you're done and you go on. But before we take it, we should actually take a second and think it through like, wait a second, what did he do? What does it mean? As you behold him through contemplation, it's not like a visual thing, but as I open my heart even now as I'm saying these things and I'm thinking of God, this is who you are. This is what you've done. This is what this means to my life. In that beholding of him, he says there's a transference of glory. The weight of what he is in a spiritually unperceived way begins to settle in on my life. And as I behold him, guess what? My face begins to shine bright like Moses, except in a greater way because the, the, the revelation that we've been given is so much greater than the law. We've been given the revelation of grace. As I behold that picture of grace, it changes me. And here is a word for somebody in here who you're struggling right now to overcome whatever challenges you might have, whatever things you find yourself tempted in and getting whooped by. You keep coming back to the cross. You keep contemplating what Jesus did. You're getting frustrated with yourself. God's saying, stop with the frustration. Just behold me. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your sin. Look to me. Look at what I've done. Consider what it means to your life. And what does it say? With ever-increasing glory. It actually says in a different translation, from glory to glory, which suggests that it's not like a one-out boom. You drop the Spirit of God all in your life and everything changes and you're everything that you're supposed to be. It's about the cultivation of intimacy and relationship with God, which takes time, which takes reflection, which takes contemplation, which takes consideration of this is who you are to me. Jesus, I see it. I value it. I trust you for it. And in that, you gain some ground. And then you're going to wake up tomorrow, and as you behold him again, you gain some more ground. I hope that by the time I check out of this world, that people will say, even if it's just like some spiritually perceived thing, 
There is something striking about his life. Not because I'm anything, not because I'm something special in God, but because I, in a consistent way, got alone and beheld him and reminded myself of his beauty and reminded myself of his wonder, of what he did and the depths of his love and what that means to my life. To do a little contemplation, I want to read another passage of Scripture. It's from Ephesians. It's the second chapter, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and 8 and 9, and then we'll talk some more. So let's look at this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And when it says the spirit, let me just go back to that for a second. When it says the spirit who is at work, the spirit who is now at work, it's the, the same word of energize. The, the, the word energy comes from that same Greek word. Imagine this. In the lives of the disobedient, Satan is energizing them. You and I used to be energized by Satan. That's a crazy thought. Who's now energized. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. It goes on to say in verse 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. Not by something you've done. You can't work for this. You can't earn it. You can't clean yourself up. It's something that he gives so that no one can boast. So let's just take a second and contemplate. What's Paul saying here? He's trying to stimulate the faith of the Ephesian believers. He's trying to stimulate them to remind them of where they came from, what Jesus did, and what that means for their life. So where did they come from? Where did you and I come from? There's four things that are said here that I think are worthy of reflection before we go on and take communion. Where were we? Starting off, where was I? Go back to the first verse, Ephesians 1. It says in Ephesians 1, we were dead in our transgressions. What does dead mean? It means there's no life. It means I was spiritually, you were spiritually incapable of connecting with God. I grew up for 18 years going through a formalism in a church that I thought meant I somehow had a connection with God. But through my formalism and through my routine, I no more had any more life than, spiritually speaking, than any of the corpses that were down the street from the church that I went to. Spiritually, before God, you were dead. You did not have any ability. Were you a spirit? Are you a spirit? Yeah, we have a soul, a spirit. That spirit's eternal, and it's going to spend time somewhere. But before Jesus, it had no ability. You had no ability to make any kind of a connectional relationship with God because of your sin. Incapable, dead, unconnected, your efforts, your sincerity, it meant zero. And that's a struggle for a lot of us because we all have a little bit of pride. We all are kind of like the older brother in the story of the parable of the prodigal son. We, 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 even in church, we can come, we can think we're connected, we can go through the routines and do the things that we think we're supposed to do, but we make it more about us and our effort than resting in the gift that God has given. And when we do that, our self-effort, it's just, it's dead. It means zero. Even your religious action, even the, the things that you would do that you felt 
prior to Jesus that there was a value in giving money, that there was a value in going to take time with somebody in a, in a shelter or whatever the things that you might place merit on. God would say, those are like filthy rags. They're not even coming from a pure place because the only thing that would spawn something that's pure is the love of God. And before Jesus, you were dead to that love. To just all of us, as we get ready to take communion tonight, can we, not, not, not to go back to feel bad about what it was, but just the reality of being sober about what Jesus has done. You were spiritually dead. And that death would carry on into eternity if it weren't for the mercy of God. Now, not only was I dead, but I also was under the influence. I was under the mastery of the God of this era, the God of this world. Satan. You would say, come on. Like I, 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 when I was going to Mass and I was going through the motions and I know I wasn't doing the right thing, you wouldn't have convinced me like Satan is actually controlling you. I'd have been like, yo, I'm not possessed. Are you serious? Like, relax. But this passage speaks to his energy actually worked through my life because I was living in disobedience by not trusting in a Savior. And that position of his energy, his life working through me, it was toward an end. What was the end that Satan had in mind? It was to keep me in a place of lifeless, dead religion so that I would eternally be separated from a God that desperately loved me. Satan energizes the lives of every person apart from Jesus, and even those that trust him, he's still trying to do his thing, but he's energizing us toward a place of death, of losing life. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy. Consider where you were before you came to Jesus. Think about the things that you were losing life in. Imagine the the, the places that he robbed you of whatever the blessing God had purposed for your life, all the ways that you were falling short and not knowing that life and not knowing that blessing because of his power. Like that God would have mercy on me to even get me out of that, that place that I was jammed up in is, is amazing. But it's not just about I'm cut off from God, and it's not just about Satan is trying to energize my life and use it in a way to keep me from God, but to use my life, think about this. You might say that you love somebody. And there, there's, there's plenty of people in my life that I, I love. But apart from God's love, it doesn't always come across as that to others. And there's a lot of things in outside of Jesus that I did, which I was actually robbed life from other people. Being a puppet in Satan's hand, being used in ways, lying and doing things that were off and wrong and just not being respectful to people. And imagine, imagine the pain that he was able to use my life to bring pain to. Like that, that's, that's where you were before Jesus came. Hmm. Not getting any amens because this is kind of heavy stuff. We're going to get to the good stuff, but before you can appreciate the value of Jesus and the beauty of all that he's done, you got to remind yourself, wait, where was I again? Why is Paul reminding the Ephesian church? Because we got to be reminded of this, because I'm a breath away from that if I don't cling to the cross. So it's not just, it's not just I was separated from God, and it's not just I was a puppet in someone's hand. Here's, here's the part that really starts to sober me up and make me silent. 
There's a part here where he says, you know, my flesh. I was living in my flesh. It comes from a word called sarks, and it's this picture of everything in me that stands in contrary opposition to God. Do you realize apart from Jesus, there is a part of you. I don't care how sweet you think you are, how kind you think you can be. There is a part that's inside of every one of us, beginning with me. Who's the greatest sinner in the room? Is me. There is something in me that wants to run in the exact opposite direction of God. Even as a Christian, Paul said, right? The greatest Christian to me that's ever lived had more theological influence over Christian, Christian history than anyone. And Paul said, boy, there's a part of me that does what I hate. I hate it, but I do it. Well, what's the part of me that hates it? It's, it's my sarks. It's, it's I hate what God wants from me, and I'm not going to yield. I won't yield. And before Jesus, listen, it wasn't just that you were somehow victimized by Satan. You welcomed his, his influence. You, you, you drew it in. And you can feign like ignorance and, oh, I really didn't want that. But the sarks in me, the flesh, stands in opposition to God and says, I want to be God, not you. My will, not yours. Now, these things are the things that started to draw God into the world. Why? Because God is a God of love. And God knows that we were in bondage. I want to read a passage of scripture from Romans in the sixth chapter, verse 17. It says this, but thanks be to God that through that though you used to be slaves to sin, just right there, slaves to sin. So the word doulos that we often use as Christians to like spirit of God, help me to become doulos like Jesus, a servant of all this in this verse is very dark and it's ugly. And a doulos was one of the most intense words that could be used for a slave in the Greek language. And it wasn't something that was just, you know, once in a while I did something. It was under full command. A slave was somebody whose will was fully commanded by another. Couldn't think the way that you wanted to think. Couldn't feel the way that you wanted to feel. You had to do whatever your master said. If your master wanted something, wanted you to smile, you better smile or you could die. If he didn't want to see you like with a long face, do that in the presence of a king. You're dead. This says that the condition of my heart was such that I was enslaved to this position of self-destruction, wanting it my way, knowing it's leading me to death, and not being able to do anything about it. I was a slave to my flesh, slave to my sin. And God, in his incredible love, this is what's so amazing. This is what, when you think about contemplating the glory and the wonder of God's love, God sent his son into the world to establish relationship, to bring dead things to life. He came into the world to break the power of an enemy's control over my life. But most importantly, he came to deal with the core of my being that would fight against God, something I inherited, something it was, I can say I didn't want it, but I've shown and proven through my life that there's plenty of it that I do want, where that ugliness, not just bringing destruction to myself, but to the people around me, he goes, I, I, I can't. I can't handle where this is leading you. Because where is it leading? This verse says it's leading to the wrath of God. What's the wrath of God? God one day, because he's loving. Sometimes we don't understand this. And if you're here today and you struggle with how could God be judgmental if he's so loving? You better hope that he's judgmental. Or else this thing that we call like reality, the world that we live in, how many would agree that it's not heaven? And it seems to get progressively worse. So imagine if 
through eternity, we had to continue to live with the progression of what we are and what we do. Thank God that the years of man have been cut short because as they continue to compound one year after another, one generation after another, you start to add up dozens of years. Before you know it, we're like the days of Noah. Every thought of their mind continually is on what they want. What they, and, and what that is is death. And God goes, I'm not doing this forever. Thank God he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden so they couldn't eat from a tree of life. Thank God that he cut the years of man short. And thank God, in that love, he followed through with sending his son into the world to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. God doesn't want us in his love to have to deal with the way that he separates what's right from what's wrong. So that right can live without wrong into eternity and wrong can deal with what it likes into eternity. God's not forcing anything on anyone. It's a choice that we all make. He didn't send people to help people choose it. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It's his desire. I just read it. That not one would perish. That all would come to repentance. It's why he's patient. And that's why he's long-suffering. He doesn't want this world to, to perish. So thank God that he is merciful. What is mercy? I don't have my little, sorry, I didn't come over with my, we're going we're gonna to take communion right now. So what is this mercy? It's Jesus coming into the world, the flesh. Uh, rather, the bread represents his body, his physical being. He came into the world. He came into the world to live a life that you and I can't live. We know this. We hear it. But let's contemplate it tonight. Why did he come? Why did he take on flesh? I'm the bread of life. He said, why did he come into the world to be fed upon? Because left to ourselves, we will ne- we'll starve in our poverty of sin. But he's come that we might feed upon what he's done in his body that we would live. He took on his body the judgment that we deserved. God in his wrath is saying, I am going to hold people accountable. And I'm going to make a break into eternity. We have an opportunity on this side of the day that we live in. It's a day of, it's a day of grace. It's, a, it's an age of grace that we live in. We have an opportunity right now to to be grateful and to say, Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the mercy that you showed. Thank you for the flesh that you took on. Thank you that you allowed yourself to be broken in your flesh so that I would someday be able to live in a a body whole in you and in, in knowing what life will be without sin. Thank you, Jesus, that you would do that for me. Take the bread right now. We're celebrating. This bread celebrates him being judged. Judgment, he got judged so that you and I wouldn't have to be. Thank God for that. His wrath was poured out completely on his son so that you and I would only know his love. You could be here today and you could have fallen short this week and he could be like, oh, God's so angry at me. No, no, no. It would be unjust for God. Listen to me. It would be unjust for God to be angry with you because on a cross, he poured out the full sum of his wrath. On his son. Jesus took on the anger of God for all of our sins once and for all. How could God then, after Jesus said it's finished, hold an issue of anger against you and I for our sin? It would mean that what his son did wasn't enough and it wasn't finished. That's incredible. His body broken so that I would know his love, judgment taken so that I would know grace. Thank God that he covered himself over. Our lives, rather, are covered over with his. Can we take that for a moment? Let's just take it. And thank God, as we take it, he was broken that we wouldn't have to be. Thank you, Jesus.
Thank you for being broken. Thank you for taking judgment. Thank you for taking wrath. We took that wrath that we might know love, that we might know grace. We thank you for it. Let's take this second part of what Jesus has charged us to do. You know, Jesus charges us to take communion. He calls us back to a place of remembering what he did on Calvary. Because if we forget it, I was reading this morning in Peter. Peter says, listen, I don't grow tired in telling you this again. And I'll keep telling it to you until I draw my last breath. Because we are so easily, we forget the things that are most important. But what's most important is Jesus Christ crucified. And this little symbol of his blood represents life. His life was perfect. I don't need to ask anybody in here if your life is perfect. I already know the answer. You're like me. It's not. But the hope that we have and what Jesus did on a cross was that his life became a substitution for mine. He poured out his blood to buy me out of the bondage of sin so that I would be able to walk in the freedom as a son. When you're celebrating the taking of the the wine, you're celebrating that his record now has been imputed to you. Perfection. God looks at you. He's not angry because judgment's been taken. But when he looks at you, he sees the perfection of his son. And again, it would be unjust for him to see anything other than that. I don't care what you've done. If you're a Christian, you've been born again. You understand that you might not be perfect, but that you are a son and a daughter of God. And if that's the case, God can't look at you through any other filter than perfection. Because Jesus said it's finished. How many are grateful for that? So we're, we're taking tonight, not lightly, we're taking it in a, in a real considerate way. We're contemplating these things. We're celebrating the covering over of our sin tonight. Can we celebrate that and take it together even now? God, we thank you for these things. We thank you for the bread. We thank you for the wine. We thank you for what they represent. And we thank you that tonight in faith we can take it and we can celebrate it. This isn't some down thing. We can talk about where we were before. God, but where you've brought us out of is amazing. We know that we were lost. We know that we were without hope. But because of what Jesus has done, we have hope today. Hope that we can stand before you without judgment. Hope that we can stand before you without a record of sin. God, we thank you tonight for these things. These realities are the hope of our day, God. And we pray that you would make them more real even as we celebrate them, that we might be the people you need us to be in our tomorrows. So we thank you for these things. We ask your blessing over them in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's put our hands together and thank God for communion and what it reminds us of. But I want to look at this Romans, the sixth chapter, verse 18. We didn't read it. No, you're good. Just want to read verse 18 for a second. Because this, this is what makes celebrating communion to me absolutely mind-blowing. Because I've been forgiven of my sin, because judgment has been taken, God's presence can now come and dwell in my heart. My heart has become his home. My life is now his tabernacle. And everything that I need to live, everything that you need to live today, it's not, I mean, this can sound weird. It's not outside of you. It's God in you. It's the hope of his life, his resurrection power that's in you. His life in you is what you, it's what you've needed all along. Whatever your prayer request might be, it's found in his life and his grace being made alive in you. And that's why he goes on to say this in verse 18, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So how am I now a slave to righteousness? Do I struggle with sin? Let's just take it, think about this for a second. Contemplate it so that you could walk out of here filled with the hope of resurrection. 
Do I still have my flesh that I contend with? I do. Has it been conditioned by this fallen world that I live in? And is it attracted to it? Is there like a magnetic pull that my flesh feels to the things of this world? Absolutely. But God has given me his spirit because of what we just celebrated. His life is in me. And that life is the hope of heaven. It's what, what makes heaven heaven? The presence of God, the fullness of God's presence. And he's given me down payment tonight. His life inside of me is proof that one day I will see him face to face. And whatever my challenges have been, whatever the difficulties are, it'll be forgotten in the presence of his glory. But we have a piece of that glory now. And I'm so thankful for that. You should be thankful for that tonight. And here's the hope against whatever sin is. Because we all struggle with it. If you haven't struggled with it today, you're going to struggle with it tomorrow. Your flesh is going to be just as attracted to this world as mine. But the hope is this. Where that used to be my master and my slave, now the Spirit of God has come and he's taken up residence. And greater is he that's in me than anything that comes against me in this world. And so now his life in me, his life in you, has power over everything. Might you struggle to try to be pulled away from the attraction of your flesh to this world? Yeah, but God's not even asking you to do it. He goes, I know you can't do it. That's why I've given you my spirit and my spirit is gonna help you as you trust me to do in you what you could never do for yourself. That is incredible. I don't care how many times I say that. I don't care how many times I celebrate communion. Every time I think about it, I'm beholding his glory. Oh God, make that more real to me. I'm telling you this, my brothers and sisters, if that was more real to you and it was more real to me, there would be a glow that came out of here in the darkness of downtown Brooklyn that would begin to push back whatever the mess is outside those doors. We can pray for God to do something in D.C. My hope isn't in D.C. It's not in the White House. It's not in some Congress. The hope is in the life of the church. What's going to make a difference for a revival to happen that people would see the glory of God? It happens in you, and it happens in me, and it happens as we behold him day by day, considering who Jesus is, considering what it means to our life, and thanking him for the life that he's put in there to make all of that possible. Amen? Come on, let's put our hands together and thank God one last time. I want to do this. I want to leave on this note for somebody that may have come in here. We're reminded. We're grateful. But if you've come in here and there's a, there's a challenge that you're facing, like, oh, man, you don't get it. You know, I had somebody this past Sunday tell me, you don't understand. I, I struggle with crack. You don't get it. You don't know. You don't understand my challenges. And I go, listen, I have my own challenges. I don't need to understand yours. Mine are as real to me as you are to you. But here's what you're missing. If you're a Christian, that life in you. You're giving too much attention to you and not enough to who Jesus is and what he's done. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you need a moment where we can begin. But if you're here and you need that to be made alive, we all need it to be made alive. But in some special way, you need it to be made alive. You come forward, and the pastors and the deacons, we're going to come around you. And we're going to stand with you. And we're going to pray for that glory to be made real, more real than it's ever been in your life. Come on, let's put our hands together and thank God for his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness, what he's brought us out of and the places he's taking us to. God, tonight we've reminded of ourselves of what you've commanded us to do, to be mindful of the sacrifice that you made on a cross so many years ago. Jesus, thank you for what it means. No more anger. Thank you that it means, God, there's no judgment. Thank you that it means that we stand before you, nothing obstructing, God our communion with you. you. You made us holy, Jesus. We don't deserve it, but we are grateful for it. We thank you for the holiness that we have.
And we thank you because of it, your Holy Spirit, that you would take up residence in our heart. God, tonight as we leave here, we're asking, help us tonight, even before we go to bed, tomorrow when we wake up, as we go through our day, to behold you in all the ways that we can, through scripture, through worship, through listening to music, through looking at people in our world around us, seeing them the way that you see them, reaching out to touch them the way that you would touch them. God, these are all things that help us to behold you. And Lord, we know that it's not a one-time thing. It's, it's a continual depositing of our faith in that reality of your glory, Lord, that changes us into your glory. We, we can't glorify you without you first making it alive in us. So tonight we've tried. We've positioned ourselves in faith to say, God, we're looking to you. May our faces, as we behold you, shine radiant, Lord, that the world would see in the darkness that's out there the hope of Jesus. God, we ask you to do this because we know we find blessing in that. But God, we ask you to do it that Jesus would be glorified, that people would come to know the same hope that we celebrate tonight. We love you. We thank you for this evening. Watch over my brothers and sisters. Get them through the week. Help us to come back here as a family and continue to love you and one another. In Jesus' name, amen.